NATO leaders hold an emergency meeting after two people in Poland were killed by a Russian missile near the border with Ukraine. Moscow has denied involvement. It's Wednesday, November 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, reaction from the GOP as Donald Trump announces a third run for the presidency. Also this hour, charter schools in Massachusetts are trying to reverse a decline in students going on to college. Plus, the conversation with former First Lady Michelle Obama about her new book continues. Today, she recalls writing about her mother. You know, she had a clear philosophy about parenting. She always talked about, she said, I'm not raising children, I'm raising adults. In sports, the Celtics are chasing their eighth straight win in Atlanta. Rainy and windy with highs in the mid-40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. WNBA star Brittany Griner has landed on American soil. She was freed from a Russian prison in a prisoner swap. Texas Public Radio's Jia Chen reports. Griner landed at Kelly Field in San Antonio in the early morning hours. The 32-year-old Houston native was imprisoned in a Russian penal colony earlier this year after authorities there found vape cartridges and cannabis oil in her luggage, sentencing her to nine years. The Biden administration negotiated her release in exchange for Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. Greiner is expected to be brought to Brook Army Medical Center. I'm Jochen in San Antonio. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema says she is leaving the Democratic Party. She says she is switching her political affiliation to independent. The Arizona senator's action comes the same week Democrats secured a 51-seat majority in the U.S. Senate. There are two other independent senators who regularly caucus with the Democrats, Angus King of Maine and Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Investigators trying to find out who shot up two power substations in central North Carolina have obtained search warrants. From member station WUNC, Jay Price reports. Moore County Chief Deputy Richard Manis says the sheriff's office had applied for several warrants over the past few days, but he declined to say what property they were for or even whether they'd been executed yet. Nope, nope, nope. They're under seal. Not going to release any of that. He did confirm shell casings were found at the substations, but declined to say how many or for what kind of weapons. Investigators had already said someone fired multiple rounds and that the shots seemed to have been aimed by someone knowledgeable about electrical grid equipment. 45,000 customers were initially without power. It wasn't fully restored until Wednesday. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Durham, North Carolina. China's leader has met with Saudi Arabia's monarch and crown prince in a visit to the country. NPR's Ayab Batrawi reports from Dubai. This trip is aimed at asserting China's influence in the Middle East. Chinese President Xi Jinping was greeted with a flyover of jets and a cavalry of horses as he arrived for a meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The Saudis hosted a banquet for the Chinese leader, and readouts from their meetings stressed that both sides expressed interest in deepening bilateral ties. China is Saudi Arabia's biggest buyer of crude and the kingdom's top trading partner. Amid competition with the U.S. for influence in the Gulf, Beijing is looking to strengthen ties with investments in a range of other industries, from green energy to construction and mining. Xi also met with Saudi King Sanman, and the two signed what was described as a comprehensive strategic agreement. She's expected to hold meetings with other Arab leaders on Friday for a summit the kingdom is hosting for him. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi.
Flu season is here, and it's starting off strong. Boston health officials say last week alone, there were more than 700 cases reported in the city. There have been 1,700 cases since the beginning of October. More than half were among children and teens. Dr. Mary Beth Miotto is president of the Massachusetts chapter of the American Academy of Pediatricians. She was seeing patients last week at the Mattapan Community Health Center. It was flu. Flu, flu, COVID and flu, 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 COVID and flu. And I think I had one who didn't have flu. Miedo urges people to get the flu vaccine, wear a mask, and stay home when sick. The Massachusetts family of an American still being detained by Russia is glad Brittany Griner has been freed. Paul Whelan has been held for four years on espionage charges that the U.S. disputes. His sister lives on Martha's Vineyard. She tells the Boston Globe that the government gave her a heads up on Wednesday night. They told her that Whelan's release was not part of the deal that freed Griner. While she calls Griner's deal a huge win, she says she hopes the White House keeps keeps working for her brother's release. The Massachusetts Teachers Association has announced a series of five priorities for the upcoming legislative session. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports from the State House, three of those priorities require more state funding. Leaders with the union are currently writing legislation that would increase wages for paraprofessionals, boost the cost of living adjustment for retired educators, and make higher education more affordable. Teachers Association President Max Page says he feels optimistic for the bill's prospects, especially since voters this fall approved a tax surcharge on incomes over $1 million to generate more state revenue. And we have a new governor who is committed to many of our priorities. Our only mistake would be to think too small at this moment. The union is also pushing to give public sector employees the right to strike. It also hopes to end high-stakes standardized testing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Encore Boston Harbor Casino is on track to start taking in-person sports bets beginning late next month. The Gaming Commission voted yesterday to award the Everett Casino the state's first sports betting license. The Plain Ridge Park Slots Parlor in Plainville and MGM Springfield are also seeking licenses, but neither of those have yet won the commission's formal approval. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. The Bruins will be in Arizona tonight to take on the Coyotes. And in your forecast, it's going to be sunny today. We'll reach the mid-40s. Clear overnight with a low around 30 tonight. Mostly cloudy tomorrow in the upper 30s. Cloudy on Sunday and in the 30s with snow moving in in the late afternoon. Less than an inch is expected in Boston and east of 495, one to two inches in Worcester. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Focus Features, presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, His Life Story Became a Love Story, directed by Michael Showalter, in theaters everywhere today. On a Friday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. 
Brittany Griner is back in the U.S. this morning. After 10 months in Russian custody, the WNBA star was released in a high-profile prisoner swap. U.S. negotiators tried to make the release of another American part of the deal, but those efforts failed. Paul Whelan has been held in Russia since 2018. He's a former Marine, and he was convicted in Russia on espionage charges, charges the U.S. government says are baseless. Here's National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby talking to NPR yesterday. Our efforts were designed to get both of them home. That was the goal, and we offered uh, different permutations of deals uh, to the Russians uh, with that as our, uh, our, our desired outcome. Joining us now is the brother of Paul Whelan, David Whelan. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Must be a bittersweet moment for your family, celebrating Brittany Griner's release, obviously, but knowing your brother couldn't also come home. It is hard, and uh, we were very grateful to the White House for giving us a little bit of advance notice so that uh, we could you know, take in the news and, and really sort of process some of that grief and disappointment privately rather than as we had to in April uh, publicly. When were you made aware that, was, that it was a possibility? Uh, it was late on uh, December 7th uh, in the afternoon out here in California where when I heard. And, I mean, you've been through this before. Do you, do you calibrate your hopes? Um, how do you manage that? I think you try not to let your hopes get too high, and I expect that uh, this time, because of the uh, announcement by the U.S. government back in August when Secretary Blinken talked about this st- substantial proposal to bring Paul and to bring Brittany home, that we may have let our hopes get a little bit high. I think even Paul was thinking already about where he would live when he got back home. And uh, I think we probably will not make that mistake again. Do you think that your brother had a better chance of getting out as part of a pair with Brittany Griner in this case? I don't know that there's a a better or worse scenario. I think all of these cases, whether it's Paul and Brittany in Russia or Maj uh, Kamalmaz in Syria or Siamak Namazi in Iran, I think all of these cases are essentially individual and running on their own track. And so it it was very good of the U.S. to try and get them both home. It makes sense to me that they would want to get both at the same time if they could, because, you know, those are the only two wrongfully detained Americans in Russia at the moment. But uh, at the same time, they're individual cases. And so it's, it's completely understandable that they would not be able to accomplish that because each case has its own requirements. As you note, each case is different and your brother is facing espionage charges in Russia, which, again, U.S. officials say are baseless, but it does make his case a lot more complicated. What do you know about the charges against him and how the U.S. is trying to counter them? Well, I think uh, the Kremlin has created a theater, and that is all this really is, is that Paul was set up uh, and he was entrapped, uh, you know, run through the Russian legal system such as it is, and came out the other side with the label of espionage and spy put on him. Uh, but I don't think anybody takes that seriously. I don't even think that the Russian government takes it seriously. Uh, it's merely a label that they can then use to extract a concession from the U.S. government. Um, and, and the Kremlin is a bully. And so uh, they want parity and they will wait now, I think, until they have uh, their own spy captured uh, and in U.S. custody and then use Paul as a trade for that. He has been in prison for four years at this point. Trevor Reed, another former Marine who was being held in Russia, was released this past spring. And now Griner's release, I know it's hard to criticize the people who hold the fate of your brother in their hands, but are you satisfied with the U.S. government's efforts to free him? 
I am, uh, and I would criticize them if I felt that they uh, deserved it. But uh, I think that uh, President Biden, in particular, and his his staff, uh, Secretary Blinken, uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan, have done an exceptional job of changing the dynamic for wrongful detainees uh, for their families. Um, and I don't think the U.S. government is where it needs to be. Uh, and it, it started behind the curve, um, but it is getting better at at handling wrongful detention cases. Uh, in particular, handling Paul's case, I think, you know, uh, giving us advance notice was a, a, a great example of that. Calling Paul so that he didn't learn about his, his being left behind again. Uh, the U.S. Embassy did that rather than him learning it on Russian media. All of these are steps forward. So I think that they are doing what they can, but we're not dealing with a terrorist organization. We're dealing with a sovereign nation state. And as long as Russia and China and Iran and Syria and Egypt and other countries are taking Americans hostage, um, the U.S. government is going to face this very difficult position of how to get people back with very limited resources. How's he doing? When's the last time you talked to your brother? I haven't spoken to him since October 2018, uh, but he was able to call our parents yesterday and express uh, the disappointment, which I think uh, um, he, he is uh, uh, is completely understandable. Uh, and I think he's probably recalibrating his own um, expectations and hopes now and trying to figure out how to continue to survive. And uh, surviving isn't living, but uh, it's something, and we will try and continue to, to support that. David Whelan the brother of Paul Whelan, an American who has been imprisoned in Russia since 2018. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Congress has given final passage to the Respect for Marriage Act. It mandates that all states should recognize same-sex marriages. Now, when President Biden signs this law, as he is expected to do, it will change nothing for now because the Supreme Court has found a right to same-sex marriage in the Constitution. But should the court's conservative majority ever rule otherwise, this law would be in place to set a federal standard. It was a bipartisan bill for the most part. It could not have passed the Senate without some Republican support. And in the House, 39 Republicans joined Democrats in voting yes. That's only about a fifth of the Republicans, but 39 of them. Former Florida Representative Eliana ross Leighton supported this legislation when she was in Congress representing Florida, and she lobbied for it now that she's out and she's on the line. Welcome to the program. Hey, Steve. Good morning. Thanks so much. How hard has it been over the years to bring your fellow Republicans or at least some of them on board with this idea? Well, this has been one of those social issues that has really moved quickly through the American landscape. Once upon a time, uh, you know, we had uh, don't ask, don't tell and so many other uh, policies related to uh, marriage inequality and people not living their true selves. So it's really moved fast. And, and the Republican Party has moved along with it. I co-chair a group called Conservatives Against Discrimination, and we work with another organization, Centerline Action, Ken Malman and Reginald Brown, both from Bush 43 White House, so mm -hmm. uh, both uh, on all of, all of these conservative groups, and and uh, we we had a quiet campaign to try to get uh, folks on online, and and boy, it it's really been a, a massive positive movement, and I thank all of the uh, Republicans who voted for it, 12 senators and 39 House members. That's right. really phenomenal. Although, let's be clear here, that is a minority of Republicans in both the House and the Senate. You're correct that some Republicans have taken what seems to be the country's majority view on this, that same-sex marriage is a right. But why do you think a majority of your party resists? Well, I think that they uh, unwisely and incorrectly gauge the uh, the non-support of their constituents back home, and they're worried about that uh, that narrow wing of the uh, Republican Party that is that is 
will not will will never accept uh, marriage equality. But actually, all the polls have indicated the Gallup poll from just a little bit ago. Seventy one percent of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, saying they support same sex marriage. And uh, each of these House members and and their Senate colleagues in recent weeks, they looked at clear public trends inside their states. So now it's 12 senators and 39 House members. But uh, if we ever had to do it again, and of course we don't because now it's codified, it is the law. But uh, you will have uh, more and more Republicans. They're coming that way. They think their constituents will not accept this view. Uh, but uh, we, we show the, the, the poll and this broad-based support it, among members of my own party. I, I bet there has been an occasion, it almost inevitably would be, you'd be talking with someone who's a Republican lawmaker who feels that same-sex marriage is simply immoral, is against their moral or religious beliefs. And I, this is kind of a deep question about democracy, really. What is the case you would make to someone in which you would say, I understand that you feel that this is immoral and utterly wrong, and yet I believe that in a republic you need to accept it anyway. How do you make that case? Well, I, I think we can make a good, a good case for it. We need to take uh, stock of the fact that what we witnessed on the floor of the House was, was historic, and it's a historic moment for the sanctity of marriage, for strong families, for religious liberty in America. It is not that it, uh, uh, it does away with the fabric of, uh, of marriage or American fabric. No, it strengthens it. And, uh, and I think that people are coming to understand that they have someone in their own family or someone with whom they work or, or someone who is uh, uh, even someone in their church who, who may be gay and who is in a same-sex relationship. And there's so many people who we think are of this uh, this garden variety or this <laughs> this other uh, a piece of salad and and you find out oh my gosh you know uh, this salad works together and this tomato and this lettuce and oh it's a delicious salad we all come from different places and we're all different people and we've got to be more accepting of others who are unlike ourselves. You mentioned, not, e you, you, not everybody's like you and me. You mentioned people in your family. Uh, people will know, some will know your son is a transgender LGBTQ advocate. Given that, what do you make of the direction of your party on trans issues right now? Well, that's going to be the, the next... Uh, uh, the next goal, we know we've got to we've got to understand that uh, not everyone who is born in a, a certain uh, gender is still identifying with that gender. That will be a, a tougher nut to crack, and it will seem right now that it will be impossible. But knowing and understanding my son Rigo, born Amanda, now uh, is identifies as a transgender male, and we came to terms with that as a family, and I come from a, a, a pretty conservative Cuban-American family, and even my 80-year-old father, before he passed away, he understood those changes. So, mm. so things happen in every family, and we've got to be understanding and accepting. We love our children no matter what. Unconditional love. Ileana ross Layton, and thank you so much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Have a great day. She's a former Republican member of Congress and co-chair of a group called Conservatives Against Discrimination. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, our series about developers buying up mobile home parks across Massachusetts. Today, the residents of one park fight back. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, with seasonal exhibit All Aboard Trains at Science Park, plus 4D and Omni Theater adventures like the Polar Express. Tickets at mos.org. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts, holiday gifts for the home chef, including recreational cooking and baking classes and gift certificates. Learn more at cambridgeculinary.com. And Bass Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Former FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover. He hated the American left, demonized and investigated his critics. But what did the rest of America think about him? He was more popular than most of us remember in these days. And that's really important because it means that his story, the things that he did, the things that he stood for, were also popular. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A sunny Friday for you today with a high near 45. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Millions of Americans live in mobile home parks. It's one of the cheaper places to buy a home. But private investors have been buying up parks in Massachusetts and across the country, threatening to raise fees or close the parks altogether. WBUR's Simone Rios has been exploring the issue this week. Today, he takes us to a community near Cape Cod where residents decided to fight back. How's everything going? Good. Good. Good to see you. How's it been? Bob Costa is like an unofficial mayor of Royal Crest Mobile Home Park in Wareham. On a recent afternoon, he walked through the park saluting everyone he saw with a big smile. You behaving? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Always. I'm too old to get in trouble. Royal Crest is like a small village, the kind of place where there are no fences and you know your neighbors. This is the uh, best park in the, in the town right now, in my opinion, I'll tell you. Every home in Royal Crest is a bit different, set among evergreens and mulched yards with small wooden lighthouses and American flags. Costa moved here seven years ago after selling a five-bedroom house on Cape Cod. Uh, I, I mean, I just turned 78 years old, and um, my wife and I uh, found this place. We loved it. We loved the location, and our intent was to finish out our lives here. It was also a cheap place to retire, cutting his monthly housing costs in half. Then one day in March, the former police officer got a disturbing letter in the mail. It said an Arizona investment firm planned to buy the park for $12.1 million. And then, like I say, when I got that letter, I was like, now uh, it's an open book. What's going to happen? Having that fear uh, really was unsettling. I mean, some people say, well, don't be fearful. They they can't force you to leave. Uh, Yes, they can. 
It's a concern facing many people across the country as investment firms snap up mobile home parks. The Arizona company that offered to buy Royal Crest already owns three others in Wareham. It's a fad right now. It's sexy real estate. That's Megan Haggerty, a New York real estate investor and broker. She says the parks offer stability even during down economies. The one sure thing is that there will still be a demand for affordable housing. I'm on the phone every day with family offices, investment firms who are looking to break into the industry. But some worry about the impact of the sales on residents. Sandy Overlock heads the Manufactured Home Federation of Massachusetts, a nonprofit that helps residents form tenant associations. She says mobile home parks have become a vital form of affordable housing for millions of people across the country, including some 30,000 in Massachusetts. Manufactured housing, mobile housing, whatever you want to call it, they're affordable housing. It's the only form of affordable housing that you can have nowadays and have your home. That's partly because the homes are manufactured off-site and are cheaper to build. The typical price of a mobile home is $150,000 in Massachusetts, a quarter the cost of a traditional single-family house. And Overlock says mobile homes are a good alternative to apartments. There's people that don't want to live in these high-rises, in these buildings that your neighbors are on each side of you and, and up and down. They want their privacy, and this is the only way they can have a piece of their life, go out and sit on their porch and work in their yard and be affordable. But Overlock says big investment companies could threaten all that. When they buy the parks, she says they raise rents, skimp on maintenance, and even clear out the parks for new development to boost profits. Their whole thing is just for an investment to earn money. And once they've earned enough of what they want and they've paid their investors, or if their investors want more, they try to sell them. Overlock says mobile home residents are particularly vulnerable to bad landlords. That's because mobile homes are not really all that mobile. Once they're trucked to a park and attached to a foundation, they're often too expensive to move, and there aren't a lot of other parks with vacancies. But there's an obscure law designed to protect mobile home residents. It gives them the first shot at buying a park before it's sold. Royal Crest resident Rachel LaRue remembers reading about it when she first got word about the plan to sell the park. I got this letter that said to me that you have first rights to buy or else this company will come in and, and buy. I thought, who in the world in this pack would be able to come up with $12.1 million? That's right. Royal Crest residents needed what works out to nearly $80,000 per household. It seemed impossible, but the residents decided they had to try. They discovered a nonprofit called Rock USA that helps tenants buy their parks. Here's one of their promotional videos. Hundreds of communities are turning to a proven model of land ownership, resident-owned communities. That's where residents purchase their communities at fair market value, becoming the new owners through what's called a co-op. Advocates also persuaded the state to chip in almost $2 million from the State Affordable Housing Fund to help pay for the purchase. But owners were still on the hook for $10 million, money the residents would have to borrow and ultimately push up rents. And they'd have to take on the extra work of managing a co-op. 
Still, nine in ten residents approve the plan to buy the park. On behalf of the Royal Crest Association, we call this an official opening. In September, the residents of Royal Crest packed into their community center to celebrate the deal. A hundred people congratulated each other, helping themselves to platters of chicken, scallops, and baked goodies. How does it feel to beat a billion-dollar industry? Nora Gosselin works for the nonprofit Cooperative Development Institute and helped Royal Crest residents bid for the park. She says she'd love to see more parks purchased by residents, but it's not an easy task. I think that the instinct, like everything needs to be resident-owned at all costs, kind of leaves behind the people who have got to do the actual resident ownership part of it. Like, so I think that it, it really requires a lot of resident buy-in. Longtime resident Rachel LaRue was at the party with her 90-year-old mother, who's lived at Royal Crest since the mid-1970s. LaRue says the purchase means her family will never have to worry about being forced to move. How does it feel? Oh, I get teary-eyed. I'm so excited. I, I really am. I'm so, so, so excited that this happened for us. You know, everything fell into place. Statewide, there are about 250 mobile home parks, and one in five are now owned by residents. But investment companies are still trying to buy up other parks across the state, and it's forcing residents to decide whether to let that happen or to band together and buy the land beneath their homes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, how a new criminal code may threaten freedom for people in Indonesia. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bouldering Project in Union Square, offering a Learn to Climb program with instruction, rental shoes, and a one-month membership. Details at bostonboulderingproject.com. And Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting A Christmas Carol, a new adaptation highlighting Dickens' time in Lowell, now through December 24th, mrt.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. After spending nearly 10 months in a Russian prison, Brittany Griner is back in the U.S. She returned this morning to Texas, a day after President Biden announced her release, saying the U.S. Olympian and WNBA star had been wrongly detained. Griner was serving a nine-year drug sentence. She was exchanged for convicted Russian arms dealer Victor Boot, who was serving a 25-year sentence at a federal prison in the U.S. Democratic Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas says the president and members of Congress put a lot of work into Griner's release. He kept on going, and the hostage team kept on going, and as members of Congress, we kept on going. Griner arrived at an airbase in San Antonio before dawn. Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona says she's leaving the Democratic Party and will register as an independent. Sinema tells CNN and Politico she won't caucus with Republicans. Earlier this week, Senate Democrats were celebrating incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock's runoff election win in Georgia. It was to give Democrats a 51-49 advantage in the Senate beginning in January. Sinema says she plans to continue voting as she has for the past four years. No deaths or injuries are reported in Turkey today after a fire broke out at a luxury hotel on the grounds of a former Ottoman palace. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi.
The head of a Massachusetts-based advocacy group is expressing relief that the U.S. House passed the Respect for Marriage Act. The act codifies same-sex and interracial marriages into law. The House passed it yesterday and now heads to President Biden for a signature. Tanya Neslusen is executive director of Mass Equality. She says she's glad the bill received some bipartisan support, but she says she's disappointed a majority of Republicans voted against it. The fact that there was any resistance at all kind of concerns me from a you know social standpoint. I thought we were at a point in our nation when um, gay and interracial marriage was no longer controversial. All nine members of Massachusetts's all-Democratic congressional delegation voted in favor of the bill. Boston is finding housing for more young adults than ever before. The city reports that since 2019, there's been a drop of more than 40 percent in youth homelessness. Over that period of time, the city has added nearly 300 more housing units, specifically for people ages 18 to 24 experiencing homelessness. There will be a wacky and loud holiday spectacle tomorrow at the Millennium Tower in Boston. WBUR's Andrea Shea tells us about the annual Tuba Christmas concert. Coordinator Natalie Sheeler says more than 100 low brass players are expected at this year's Tuba Christmas. It was created in order to bring attention to the tuba family, which often doesn't get as much attention as other families of instruments. Tuba Titan Harvey Phillips founded the event in 1974 to honor his teacher William Bell, who was born on Christmas Day. It looks very Dr. Seuss-like or kind of like the brass band that you'll see in the Harry Potter movies. Boston's Tuba Christmas starts at noon in downtown Crossing. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. It's game two of a three-game road trip tonight for the Bruins. They'll be out west to skate with the Arizona Coyotes. And in your forecast, clear skies today with temperatures in the low 40s. A few clouds move in tonight and it falls to the low 30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and in the low to mid 30s. It falls to the upper 20s in the evening. It's 33 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Japaigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work. At jhpiego.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Indonesia's new criminal code, approved this week by the country's parliament, is provoking international condemnation. The new laws essentially make having sex outside of marriage against the law. And breaking that law would land someone in jail. Human rights groups say restrictions around sex are just one part of the new code that stifles civil liberties in a much broader way. We've called on Indonesian human rights lawyer Veronica Komen. She joins me from Sydney, Australia. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for inviting me today. 
The new criminal code would have profound implications for the LGBTQ community in Indonesia, right? Because it makes sex outside of marriage illegal, but same-sex marriage in Indonesia is banned. That is very excellent question because, of course, the drafters drafted in a such a heteronormative way that it further marginalizes same-sex couples because same-sex marriage is not recognized in Indonesia and it means it can be weaponized by uh, because it's a clause it's an offense warranting complaint it means that uh, by uh, by family members so it means that LGBTQI plus people living in Indonesia will live in fear in case that their family is not approved for uh, their relationship then it can be weaponized towards them Huh. So it it provides those families who may suffer a rift over someone's sexuality uh, a way to to tell on one another, which seems very destructive. Yep, and it means you know people will live in fear of their own family members. The new criminal code also limits free speech. Uh, you can't insult or critique Indonesia's president or vice president. It also outlaws demonstrations without a, a government permit. Um, that seems less egregious, but talk to me about how you see these new limitations. So not just, you got it right there, but not just president or vice president, but any state institution, any government officials. So even if like I insult a receptionist working at a, uh, a public prosecutor office, then I can be uh, charged. We literally cannot speak anymore anything about uh, government officials. It's a death to democracy in Indonesia. <laughs> Is there a political movement against this? Is there resistance from grassroots organizations? Totally. So in 2019, actually, hundreds of thousands of Indonesians took to the streets. That's why it was delayed until now, until this week, I mean. Uh, but then COVID happened. Uh, so there's totally a uh, huge uh, resistance and civil society is already discussing to challenge this law at the uh, constitutional court because technically speaking, it will come into force in three years from now. So we have window of opportunity to raise our voice, including international pressure from you know, the audience that hearing, listening to this right now. We need your voice. Indonesian human rights lawyer Veronica Komen in Sydney, Australia. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, the 32 teams at the World Cup in Qatar are now down to eight. Yeah, the quarterfinals begin today, and all eight teams playing can make a case that they are the ones who have a shot to win. Quarter for your thoughts. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman is following an evenly balanced tournament. Hey there, Tom. Hi, Steve. Who are the contenders? Well, let's run them down, Steve. Croatia finished second at the 2018 World Cup, still very good, playing Brazil, winner of five World Cups, ranked number one in the world, mm -hmm. and they are Brazil. Uh, then the Netherlands, three-time World Cup runner-up against Argentina, also a three-time runner-up and two-time champion, but they've never won with Lionel Messi. You might have heard of him, Steve. Little guy, scores a lot of goals, one of the all-time greats. This is his last dance at the World Cup. 
last chance to win it as well. Then tomorrow, Portugal, with its all-time great Cristiano Ronaldo, yanked from the starting lineup, and his team looked better for it in a free-flowing 6-1 beatdown of Switzerland. Portugal plays Morocco. Now, that's the surprise of the bunch, but kind of not. Very good team on a roll. They haven't been beaten here. They, they, they're very strong defensively. The only score against them has been an own goal, and they have a huge fan base. The Arab world has gone gaga for the Atlas Lions. And then finally, France, the defending champion, possessor of the fantastic player Kylian Mbappe against England, which is loaded with talent and has the co-lead for most goals scored in the tournament. So there it is, your great eight. Wow, a whole lot of possibilities <laughs> there. Let me ask about one of the possibilities a couple of the great players that you mentioned Messi and Ronaldo is it possible that they could have a head-to-head matchup at some point there's been hope that that will happen technically it is possible they're on opposite sides of the draw so they could play for a title they could play for third place either way any head-to-head matchup would be diminished since Ronaldo may be banished from the starting lineup for good after Portugal was so dominant without him Mm. Messi on the other hand has been very important to Argentina he scored three goals his first one really save the team in a must-win group stage match against Mexico. Even if they don't meet head-to-head, this is the end, at the World Cup at least, of an amazing time. You know, most of the last two decades, Messi and Ronaldo set the standard and were the two most famous players of a generation. Is a new generation rising? Well, it is so. You know, interestingly, you're going to see some of that in the France versus England quarterfinal on Saturday. Kylian Mbappe, as I mentioned, was a teenage breakout star in France's World Cup title run in 2018. He's picked up here in Qatar as a 23-year-old. Currently, he has a scoring lead with five goals. He's blazing fast, deadly accurate as a scorer, throw in a magnetic personality. He is quickly climbing to the top. And then meantime, England's Jude Bellingham, he's 19. He's a teenage breakout star in this tournament. He's a dazzling midfielder with the ball at his feet. He really does it all, and people are marveling at his skill at such a young age. With all of this possibility, isn't Brazil still the favorite? Brazil is. You know, they are the favorites. They're playing so well. They're dancing after goals. That's a worrisome and somewhat annoying sight for opponents. <laughs> Whoever Brazil <laughs> plays going forward, starting with Croatia today, it's going to be tough. But yeah, they're expected to emerge dancing or not with a six title. Don't you normally dance at the end of your interviews on NPR, Tom? You do I'm dancing little... right now. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm yeah. glad you're able to keep the microphone in the proper range. <laughs> NPR's Tom Goldman at the World Cup in Qatar. Thanks. You're welcome. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, schools, including Harvard, are trying to figure out what to do in the event that the U.S. Supreme Court overturns affirmative action. And in our next hour, violence is increasing in the West Bank as Israel puts together what could be its most right-wing governing coalition ever. 
Sunny and low to mid-40s today. Clear tonight while temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, upper 30s. Cloudy on Sunday in the 30s with snow possible late in the day. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Metro West Subaru where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Now in business news, the CEO of Somerville-based Greentown Labs is stepping down after a decade in the position. Emily Reichert was also the climate startup's first employee. She says she'll assist the interim CEO until the position is filled. Then she'll serve on Greentown's board of directors. Reichert and Greentown were in the international spotlight last week when Prince William and Princess Kate visited. UMass Chan Medical School is hoping to expand into Burlington. It plans to partner with Leahy Hospital and Medical Center. Students there will follow the core UMass Chan curriculum with a focus on leadership and health education. The plans still need to be approved by the organization that certifies medical schools before it can move forward. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Following October's oral arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court, universities are bracing for a decision on the use of race in admissions. Many expect the court's conservative majority to strike down the practice, which schools like Harvard say they've used to build racial diversity. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, some worry that will stunt progress on the campus. Muskan Arshad is glad to be back at Harvard after a trip home for Thanksgiving break. Home is Bentonville, Arkansas, the small, predominantly white town where Arshad grew up. Her family migrated from India when she was five. It didn't always feel like home. I never felt accepted and okay being brown and being a person of color, being Asian American in Arkansas. It felt very unsafe. Arshad, now a sophomore, says that being at Harvard changed everything, down to her sense of herself. And I think I really understood just like the benefit of having such a, being in such a diverse place and feeling like my race wasn't something that I had to hide away and be ashamed of. That may come as a surprise, given Harvard's reputation as exclusive, wealthy, and historically white. But the last decade really has seen a minor explosion of racial diversity at the school. You can't miss it in the multiracial, multilingual crowd in the campus center. In 2010, almost half of Harvard undergraduates were white students from the U.S. In 2019, that was down to just a third. That made room for 26% more Asian American students, 50% more black students, and 50% more Hispanic students. Harvard says that progress depends on its ability to consider students' race in admissions decisions and that its racial diversity would decline if affirmative action were taken away. 
But the Supreme Court threatens to do just that next spring or summer. Several in the court's 6-3 conservative majority sounded skeptical during oral arguments. In a companion case against the University of North Carolina, Justice Clarence Thomas asked lawyers to explain the word at the heart of their case. I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Uh, It seems to mean everything for everyone. If affirmative action were to go away, racial diversity would likely suffer, at least temporarily. Nine states have banned the practice at their public universities, including Michigan and California. Zachary Bleemer is an economist at the Yale School of Management, and he studied the aftermath of California's ban, which went into effect in 1998. California public universities, especially the most selective schools, have seen large declines in Black and Hispanic enrollment, both immediately after the affirmative action ban and in the long run. The Supreme Court has long encouraged colleges to find ways to promote diversity other than explicit bonuses based on the race of an applicant. And Bleemer says California tried to do just that. It built up outreach at predominantly Black and Latino high schools. It opened its doors to top-performing students from any California high school. And it stopped considering standardized tests. None of these policies are nearly as impactful as race-based affirmative action. Black and Hispanic enrollment maintains a, a level of much lower than it was prior to 1998. Harvard has argued that its own race-neutral efforts, like upping financial aid and recruitment, wouldn't be enough to maintain its current racial diversity on their own. But some experts say those efforts have been half-hearted at best. For example, Harvard's admission system still favors the children of alumni and faculty, who tend to be from white and wealthy backgrounds. The result has been the systematic exclusion of qualified students from low-income backgrounds, according to researcher Richard Collenberg. So they're racially diverse while being economically tilted toward the rich. That's the model that universities want to pursue. Not only are wealthy students on average better prepared for college life, they cost universities less in scholarships and support. Collenberg, a former fellow at the Century Foundation, a left-leaning think tank, said an affirmative action ban might weaken the class-based barriers still stubbornly in place. The real goal should be to create a fair admissions process that identifies students who have managed to do pretty well despite having to surmount hurdles. There is some evidence that racial diversity can survive, even without race-based affirmative action. But the experience in California shows it can take years and lots of experimentation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. I always love when I can say to you, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Or as Pablo in the kitchen says, viva venerdì. <laughs> happy Friday to you. So a couple things I want to focus on today. So we have a, a, a regular segment called The Business of Boston. Mm-hmm. Not surprising what it's about, right? Which is <laughs> The Business of Boston. But we're going to take a look at a new report that shows that Black and Latino residents of the Commonwealth are more likely to need to rely on the emergency room for mm-hmm. health care. 
what does that have to do with the business of Boston? You say a lot. A lot, yeah. Exactly. In terms of time out of work, um, acute acuity of the need by the time you get to the emergency room, under service of uh, a key population. So we're going to look at the economic impact of that. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to continue our look at the brewing industry in Mm -hmm. Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. which turns out to be one of the biggest in the country. Sure. Do you get samples on this Friday? We do. You do? Okay. All right. You know us. (laughs) Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. It's 751. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avalara, sales tax automation for businesses of all sizes, designed to simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates and automatic filing. Learn more at avalara.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. There's already been some controversy about a film that opens today. It's called The Whale. It's about Charlie, a man who left his wife and young daughter when he finally admitted he's gay. His boyfriend later died, and that sent Charlie into a tailspin of depression. His weight ballooned to 600 pounds. He's confined to his apartment. His every movement is labored. He refuses care except from an in-home nurse who's also his closest friend. Charlie, your blood pressure is 238 over 134. Sorry. Stop saying you're sorry. Go to the hospital. You have congestive heart failure. If you don't go to the hospital, you'll be dead by the weekend. Brennan Fraser plays Charlie in a performance that's already rumored to be a shoe-in for an Oscar nomination. In what Charlie thinks are his final days, he tries to reconnect with the now teenage daughter that he abandoned. Charlie appears to be someone who has chosen slow suicide. Fraser sees his character differently. This is a story about a man who wants to live, although he must die. He knows that he's aware of it. He's not necessarily at peace with it, but his only salvation is to reconnect with her. And I think not that much else matters. But if Charlie wants to live, why is he killing himself? I don't know that he is killing himself. I think that he wants a sense of peace. He's deeply wounded by the loss of his loved one. He fell irrevocably, head over heels, hopelessly in love with someone else while he was married. And Charlie tries to soothe his grief with food. And he doesn't really succeed. He never eats for pleasure. And the tragic consequences of that are what we see played out. As he says, to his daughter when she asks him, does this mean I'm going to get fat? He says, no, No, it doesn't. I was always big. I just, I let it get out of control. And that's where and why he finds himself in the position he's in. Brendan Fraser wears a fat suit for this role, and the camera sometimes lingers on his body. Some have called out director Darren Aronofsky for fat shaming. Others wish he'd hired an actor who's closer to Charlie's body type. Here's Darren Aronofsky. I was completely surprised by any controversy. I think there's been this long, sad history of movies portraying people with obesity as punchlines, as jokes, as evil characters, and never as human beings. And the way the makeup was always portrayed was just... um, 
cut from foam or pillows or just in no way trying to attempt to make a real human body. And we pulled it off. So most, I think, of the criticism is based on just what people have done in the past. And I just encourage people to come see the movie. I just, I wanted to say that the whale is one specific story about one specific person. Because not all people who struggle with obesity are going to struggle with it the same way. Some of the experience that I was able to glean came from working with the Obesity Action Coalition, who are a support and reference group. And the partnership that we had with Dr. Rachel Goldman, an eating disorder specialist and psychiatrist who partnered with us to ensure that we had every best intention to approach the topic with as much sensitivity and empathy as possible. So it became almost um, a mandate of mine that I took on to bring dignity to this man who would otherwise be overlooked. You mentioned Charlie. He wants to reconnect with his daughter. He left her and her mom when, when she was just a kid. She's 17 now. So let's hear a little bit of that from the film. When I left your mom, she did not want me around you. I hoped that she would change her mind eventually. but She could have just called me. All this time, you could, you could have been a part of my life. Ellie, look at me. Who would want me to be a part of their life? So, Brendan, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people are going to see this and, and think, well, he's he's pointing at the way he looks. And I don't know necessarily if, I, if that's what I thought when I saw that. I, it doesn't matter to me, I think, that he's big. I think it's how he's led his life that he doesn't feel he's worth anyone's love or even anyone's presence. Well, weight stigma poses direct and significant consequences for our emotional and physical health. So Charlie is someone who is entirely self-aware. He has lived a full life. He's more than just who he is as he presents. He's a father, he's an educator, and has no small capacity to love he has the ability to see the good in others when they can't see that in themselves. And he can bring that out in them. And the tragic poetry of that is, is that he can't help himself in that same way. Um, Darren, one of, one of the lines that I'll remember from Charlie is when he talks about... Do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of not caring? Do you think that's true, that people are incapable of not caring, that they're amazing? Wow. Um, you have to ask me personally? Uh, <laughs> I think I do. I just, um, it's just interesting how much we run from that. I, like the last few years have just been um, such a time of disconnection and, and cynicism. We are connected. I, I think cut the movie coming out right now, is kind of perfect because the life that Charlie is living, I think a lot of people led that life for the last three years. Um, yeah. Just being away from people and not having those relationships yeah. and maybe forgetting how to be a human being. Brennan, what about you? Are, are people incapable of not caring? Are people amazing? Personal view, I think that we all are incapable of not caring. It just depends on what you care about. <laughs> and it's also the moniker of a man who has had a very complicated relationship with his loved ones. And 
in the little amount of time that he has left, I think it's his way of, of thanking them. Brendan Fraser is the star of The Whale. Darren Aronofsky directed the film. Brendan and Darren, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. Be well. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm E. Martinez. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Mid-40s and sunny today, clear and low 30s tonight, cloudy in 30s tomorrow, cloudy in 30s on Sunday, too. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Basketball star Brittany Griner is back in Texas. The U.S. secured her release after 10 months in Russian custody, but not that of fellow American Paul Whelan. It's Friday, December 9th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. House approves a bill protecting same-sex marriage rights. Here's California Congresswoman Democrat Judy Chu. No one should have to live in fear that a Supreme Court decision could invalidate their marriage in the blink of an eye. Meanwhile, Republicans are reassessing their candidates following Herschel Walker's loss in Georgia. Also this hour, violence is escalating in the Israeli-occupied West Bank as Israel puts together what could be its most right-wing governing coalition ever. And this weekend, Boston celebrates Tuba Christmas. Whenever you hear 100 or 200 tubas together, it's just so much sound that it's show-stopping. It makes your whole body vibrate. Sunny in 40s today, it's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. WNBA star Brittany Griner has returned to the United States. She arrived at a military base in San Antonio this morning. Griner was imprisoned for months by Russia and released as part of an international prisoner swap. The U.S. is still seeking the release of former Marine Paul Whelan, but National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the Russians would not release Whelan. This was the deal we could get, and now was the moment we could get it. Um, and as we've said before, we felt like we had a moral obligation to take the Russians up on this to at least get uh, one of the two uh, home. He spoke to NPR's All Things Considered. Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema is no longer a Democrat. She says she is switching her party affiliation to independent. Cinema, a moderate, is taking the action the same week the Democrats secured a 51-vote majority in the U.S. Senate. Cinema says she will not caucus with Republicans. Senate independents Angus King of Maine and Bernie Sanders of Vermont caucus with the Democrats. A judge in Colorado has released previously sealed court documents concerning the alleged attacker at a Colorado Springs gay nightclub. From member station KRCC, Abigail Beckman has more. 
The documents in question relate to a previous arrest of the alleged shooter, Anderson Lee Aldrich. The judge said the profound public interest in scrutinizing law enforcement actions outweighs the suspect's right to privacy. Defense attorneys argued that unsealing the records would threaten a fair trial. The previous incident involving Aldrich concerns a bomb threat that led to a lengthy standoff with law enforcement. Charges were ultimately dismissed and all related records were sealed in accordance with Colorado law. Earlier this week, Aldrich was charged with numerous counts related to the nightclub attack, including first-degree murder, attempted murder, and bias-motivated crimes. For NPR News, I'm Abigail Beckman in Colorado Springs. The Taliban are defending their first known public execution of a man that they accused of murder. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Islamabad, the Taliban have since faced an international outcry. The man was executed by the father of his alleged victim in Afghanistan this week. It comes after reports that the Taliban were undertaking public floggings of people they accused of crimes, ranging from drug dealing to adultery. Taliban leaders insist public punishments like these are commanded by God, but residents say they aren't allowed to film them or share them online. When they first ruled Afghanistan in the mid-90s, the Taliban used a sports stadium in Kabul to pack in spectators to watch people being punished. Amnesty International said the public execution was cruel, inhumane and degrading and described it as a major setback for human rights. Dee Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Teachers and school officials in Medford have still not come to an agreement on a contract. The Medford Teachers Association says it rejected a proposal from the mayor and school committee this week. The association issued a no-confidence vote in the mayor on Monday. That came after months of negotiations that didn't yield results. Union members rejected the initial deal that was proposed in October. Big investors are snapping up mobile home parks across the country, including here in Massachusetts. WBUR's Simone Rios talked with residents at one park in Wareham. They decided to fight back by buying the park themselves. Brenda Ladderbush has lived at Lee's Trailer Park for more than three decades, and she thought she'd be able to spend the rest of her life there, despite word for years that the former owner wanted to find a buyer. It was going to sell for over 20 years and it never sold, so... We kept hearing rumors, but then when the rumor came true, it was a shock. Where are you going to go? I don't know yet. I'm having a hard time because I have three animals. Ladderbush is waiting to see how much the owner, Parkway Homes, will pay for her trailer, which can't easily be moved. Parkway says it plans to replace the dilapidated park with modern transit-oriented housing. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Simone Rios. Boston City Council is looking for ways to reduce the city's rat population. At a hearing yesterday, officials suggested improving trash pickup as a way to cut off the rat's food supply. Councilor Gabriella Coletta also floated the idea of bringing the fight directly to the rats. I've heard of other towns getting owls to help and to try to, you know, I've, I've heard that owls at some point during the day or whenever they're, they're mating, they eat as many as 12 rats per day. Counselors say they worry families will leave Boston if the city does not better address its rodent issues.
A recount in the state House race on the North Shore shows the Democrat challenger beat the Republican incumbent by a single vote. An initial vote count after Election Day found Republican State Rep Lenny Mira 10 votes ahead of Democrat Kristen Kastner, but a recount finished yesterday pushed Kastner into the lead. Mira says he'll fight the recount results in court. A new outdoor concert venue is coming to East Boston. The stage at Suffolk Downs is expected to open next spring at the old horse race track. It'll have a capacity of 8,500 people. Josh Boddy is with The Bowery Presents, a promoter for the venue. He says the venue will be seasonal. Having an outdoor venue has been a huge goal of ours. And being able to, you know, kind of get there uh, towards sunset on a summer night and take in music, I feel is just one of those vital things. Artist lineups for the stage will be announced as early as January. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use, alprime.com. And the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars, because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Bruins visit the Arizona Coyotes tonight. Boston has won 11 of its last 13 games. And in your forecast, sunny today will reach the mid-40s, clear overnight with a low around 30. Mostly cloudy tomorrow in the upper 30s, cloudy Sunday, and in the 30s with snow moving in late. Less than an inch is expected in Boston and east of 495, one to two inches in Worcester. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 808. WBUR supporters include Brit Box, for lovers of British TV, offering a varied selection of British mysteries, dramas, comedies, and other programming. Gift subscriptions available at BritBox.com gifting. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. When Herschel Walker ran for U.S. Senate in Georgia, he faced criticism for many things he said. But when he lost this week, he gave a gracious concession speech. I don't want any of you to stop dreaming. I don't want any of you to stop believing in America. I want you to believe in America and continue to believe in the Constitution and believe in our elected officials most of all. Unlike some, Walker did not claim his defeat was unfair. The loss concluded a disappointing midterm for Republicans who failed to recapture the Senate. So we called a Republican who knows a lot about Senate elections. Stephen Law runs a political action committee that spent tens of millions of dollars on Republican candidates. What went wrong with Herschel Walker's campaign? I think there were several things. First of all, uh, Herschel Walker obviously was a uh, tremendously famous uh, sports figure in the state, uh, beloved, uh, 100% name ID, but he also had a lot of problems in his past life, many of which he was quite straightforward about. Uh, but when that, when those kinds of things end up in the political environment, it uh, it, it did him some harm. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, Raphael Warnock is an unusually strong candidate. It's not any surprise that Democrats are already looking at him as a potential future presidential candidate. He raised over $100 million, and he used that very effectively uh, to negatively define uh, Walker. Now, Walker raised a lot of money himself. He raised more money than any other Republican uh, challenger in the country. 
but it just proved to be a bridge too far. When you talk about Warnock's image, some analysts have pointed out that Warnock worked very hard over the past couple of years to appear bipartisan. You might agree or disagree as to whether he really was, but he worked with Ted Cruz on things that were important to his state. He he had a particular stance on immigration that was different than the rest of his party. He was he was taking his own stances on things. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, one one can argue whether it was more artifice than reality, but uh, he was certainly smart enough to invest in efforts to to appear bipartisan, and, and it was a huge part of his messaging, which indicates, you know, something that's going on in the electorate that that voters want to see more cooperation in Washington. They want to see people working together. Uh, they're they're tired of the uh, the, the hardcore partisanship and the. Uh, the crisis, the scandal, the grievance politics, they want to see people solving problems. And Warnock clearly marketed himself that way. And we, <laughs> whether or not it was uh, accurate or not, it seemed to stick with voters. Did the Georgia result symbolize the whole problem for the Republican Party in the midterm elections? I think Georgia had a lot of unique uh, com- complicating factors. I mean, it was the one race where we had a, a, a true celebrity on the ballot, uh, and we were also running against a Democrat uh, who was uh, popular. Uh, but the cycle uh, didn't go well for Republicans for any number of reasons. Uh, among them, uh, the uh, red wave that a lot of people were expecting, we were not, but a lot of people were, it just never materialized. Democrats were very energized. And then the second thing that uh, hurt Republicans was was candidate quality overall. We, we just had a number of candidates and I'm not just talking at the Senate level, at gubernatorial level, House races, up and down the ballot, uh, candidates who were flawed, candidates who simply couldn't communicate uh, to the middle part of the electorate, which ended up having a decisive role in, in these election outcomes this year. I want to ask about another factor that I think you've commented upon in social media. Fox News personalities in the last few days have been saying, wow, it was a really bad idea for Republicans to avoid early voting and to pretend there was tons of fraud in the system. Well, exactly right. You go back to the days of when Karl Rove and Ken Melman ran the RNC, the Republican Party bested the Democrats on getting out the vote in every single election. Democrats were simply not good at it. And over the last couple of decades, they've really invested in in, in doing well at that while Republicans started to treat early voting as a bad habit that needed to be avoided. And uh, we got the results that uh, you would expect from that. I, I do think it's important that the party uh, step up on it. I'm I'm glad to hear that people are, are recognizing that this was a, a major tactical failure on the Republican Party side. Paul Ryan, the former House Speaker, said something the other day that I think he said before, kind of a formula. He said, with Trump, we lose. Without Trump, we win. Is he correct? Well, I think Trump himself will have a decision to make about how he wants to come across and what he wants uh, to talk about. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, what voters are in the mood for is constructive, competent leadership. They want leaders to get the job done and to leave us alone. And you look at what's worked, you look at the, the kinds of politicians who have been succeeding in the last couple of elections. It's been people like Governor Brian Kemp, Governor Glenn Youngkin, Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, you began that answer. I asked if, if Republicans lose with Trump, and you said, well, it depends on how he decides to present himself. Are you saying you think it is still conceivable that that this particular former president could rebrand himself as a competent centrist? I, I really don't know. I mean, I'm uh, nowhere near that inner circle or and uh, I'd be the last person who could predict his thinking or how he'd approach things. But I, the one thing I do know is what we are seeing that voters are now drawn to. They're, they're drawn to politicians uh, who are not mired in grievance politics. They're not mired 
in uh, some particular ideological bent. They want to solve problems. They want to make people's lives better. And uh, a leader who comes forward with, with that kind of approach is more likely to be successful than one who's not. Stephen Law, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. An already violent year in the Israeli-occupied West Bank is getting worse. In the last few days, Israeli troops have killed several Palestinians, including a teenager. On the ground, officials are concerned about what comes next. A new Israeli government is taking office, and it's set to be the most right-wing coalition Israel has ever seen, with ultra-nationalists who want harsher treatment of Palestinians. NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us now from Tel Aviv. Daniel, thanks for being here. Can you just start off by giving us more details about the events of the last few days? Well, let me tell you just about yesterday alone, Rachel, Israel says its forces were on an arrest raid. Palestinian gunmen opened fire on the soldiers and Israeli troops killed three men. Uh, At least one may have been a militant. One reportedly was a man in his 40s on his way to work. And then somewhere else later on, Israel says soldiers opened fire at Palestinians throwing rocks at Israeli cars. And Palestinian officials say a teenager was killed. And that is just one day alone, Rachel. We have seen similar incidents every few days or so. Uh, This year, Israeli troops have killed more than 140 Palestinians in the West Bank. That's the highest number in a single year in about a decade and a half. And remember, more than 30 Israelis also have been killed. Why? I mean, why is this year so bad? Well, it all started, Israel's crackdown on the West Bank was launched after some deadly attacks on Israelis earlier this year. This has been going on for months. Um, Israel has been going after Palestinian militants, confiscating guns in the occupied West Bank, and Palestinians have been organizing themselves more and more, taking up arms, actually shooting at Israeli troops during these raids. Then there's something else we've been seeing some Israeli settlers, civilians, actually going out and by themselves attacking Palestinians and their property. Now, both sides here are blaming each other. Palestinian officials say to Israel, well, if you and your army don't raid our cities, then these deaths won't happen. And Israeli officials are saying, well, if you Palestinians take action against militants, we wouldn't need to carry out this crackdown. This is a vicious circle of violence, and there really is no sign of it ending. Because, as we nodded uh, in the intro, Benjamin Netanyahu is returning to office as prime minister, has promised even even a tougher line on Palestinians. Explain, uh, explain what's likely to change. Well, Netanyahu is still putting together his government, but he is um, set to be leading with the most far-right ultra-nationalist politicians um, on the main on on the Israeli scene, they are known for their hostility toward Palestinians. They want tougher policing of Palestinians. We hear some saying uh, things like, "Well, if Palestinians throw rocks, they should be shot." Um, this includes an incoming national security minister who has who is convicted in Israel for supporting an anti-Arab group that is considered a terrorist group here. Um, it includes far-right politicians and key positions who want to expand infrastructure for Israeli settlements. The U.S. is concerned about all this rising West Bank violence, and there's a debate among officials in Washington over what actions to take with this new government. NPR's Daniel Estrom reporting from Tel Aviv. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, Rachel. So we've talked before on the show about how climate change activists are targeting works of art. NPR's Neda Ulubi asked how that looks to an art critic. Over the past few months, soup has been thrown at a Van Gogh. Orange paint sprayed all over a Charles Ray sculpture in Paris. 
Black Gunk on a Gustav Klimt in Vienna. And on YouTube, you can see climate activists taping themselves to a couple of artworks by Goya at the Prado in Madrid. Critic and author Blake Gopnik says this suggests that art is not irrelevant. It matters to people in a way that really surprises me as an art critic. I mean, you know, the stuff is supposed to be esoteric. But art in museums is accessible. Where else can you walk right up to something so symbolic of the establishment and let everyone know exactly what you think of how the rich spend their resources? Billionaires pay hundreds of millions of dollars for works like these at fancy auction houses, and wealthy tourists fly around the world to see them. Art has a kind of celebrity status that it's never had before. Every art lover, Gopnik included, is aghast at the potential damage to cultural treasures. But he's also aghast at the damage being wreaked upon the world. These works of art may not deserve to be attacked by climate activists, Gopnik says, but perhaps that's not true of all of them. There are works of art that I wish someone would attack, but I ain't going to go on the record about that, I don't think. Oh, come on. Okay, I will go on the record. How about if someone attacked the people? A Beeple. Beeple is the artist whose NFTs made headlines last year because they sold for so much money. One was auctioned for $69 million, even though NFTs rely on environmentally unfriendly blockchain technology. If they could get a hold of the $69 million Beeple and throw some food at it, I actually wouldn't complain. Getting a hold of a Beeple might be impossible for climate activists, but when they target works of extraordinary art, Blake Gopnik says, they remind us of everything we have to lose. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition in this week's StoryCorps, the parents of a six-year-old killed in the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary talk about their daughter. It's 8.20. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, LaurenHolleran.com. Former FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover. He hated the American left, demonized and investigated his critics. But what did the rest of America think about him? He was more popular than most of us remember in these days. And that's really important because it means that his story, the things that he did, the things that he stood for, were also popular. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A sunny Friday for you today with a high near 45. Mostly clear tonight with a low around 30. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a high near 35. There's a slight chance of brief snow showers in the afternoon. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert. Starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story. Directed by Michael Showalter. In theaters everywhere today. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. 
Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We've been visiting multi-generational households on this program. And this is a story of a student in such a household who had to put his life plans on hold. Here's NPR's Claire Marishima. William Cummings is 27 and lives with his dad and stepmom in Simpsonville, South Carolina. Uh, I love my parents. Um, I, <laughs> great roommates, right? <laughs> William went to Vanderbilt University right out of high school. Things didn't work out for him there, so he moved back home, started a retail job, hoping to buy a place of his own. According to Richard Fry at the Pew Research Center, he's not alone in doing that. It tends to be young adults who either stop their education at high school, high school dropouts, or those who maybe attended college but did not finish at least a bachelor's degree. For men without bachelor's degrees, their paycheck hasn't kept up with the rising cost of living over the past 50 years. Effectively, it's become less affordable for them to be able to live independently. And to make William's aspirations of living independently even more difficult, in the summer of 2020, he was diagnosed with leukemia. Off the bat, my oncologist told me that most people um, who survive the treatment and transplant usually don't work for, for about two years afterwards. He was in the hospital for about a month, and after being discharged, he needed care 24-7. And my parents were, were gracious enough to, you know, without question, uh, let me stay with them and take care of me while I was, you know, unable to, to take care of myself. While recovering, William decided he wanted to go back to school, and it helped that everything was online. He first got his associate's degree, and now he's working on a bachelor's at Clemson University. Even though he's two years past his most intensive cancer procedure, his illness forced his family into roles of caregiver and care receiver, and he wants to break out of that. You know, I would love to be able to take care of groceries or contribute to maintenance or do the things that they need done for them, um, you know, that they've been doing for me for so long. It's also hard not to compare his life to others when his twin brother has moved to Charleston, gotten married, and become a parent. He's the exact same age as me, but, but he's living a very different life. And I don't know if I necessarily would have, you know, had that, that family arrangement, but I think I would have moved maybe a little farther away and been living on my own. Meanwhile, William says he feels like a guest in his parents' home. I really feel like I don't allow myself to socialize. Um, I wouldn't feel comfortable having people over very frequently either. I, I feel like I need to respect, you know, their space, their routine as much as I can. At 26, William got kicked off his parents' insurance and started receiving Medicaid. Although they are supportive of him living at home and he doesn't feel too much judgment from friends, he puts a lot of the guilt on himself. So I think there's, there's an internalized stigma that at my age, I should be living on my own or with a partner, um, and I'm not. <laughs> but living at home has allowed him to stay close with his dad and stepmom and given him a second shot at college. Claire Murashima, NPR News. Time now for StoryCorps. Next week is the 10th anniversary of the shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. 
A gunman killed six educators and 20 children, including Jeremy Richmond and Jennifer Hensel's six-year-old daughter, Aviel. In 2017, Jeremy and Jennifer talked at StoryCorps. Jennifer wanted us to share that conversation. Aviel was not supposed to be in school that day. We had already made plans to go to New York City to see the Rockettes, but they were building gingerbread houses in the classroom that day, and she really wanted to go. I remember my phone rang with the emergency alert from the schools. It was just chaos, trying to figure out what was going on. I remember just searching and searching for her. We organized a list for families that couldn't find their kids. There was 29 or so on there. They found a couple more kids that had ran, so that made it 26. And then it just stayed at 26. And so then I knew. You grabbed my shoulders and you looked me in the face and said, I need to tell you this before you hear it from someone else. Aviel is probably dead. And I said, I can't leave until I see her. I'm her mom and that's my job. I have to see her. What do you miss most about Avi? The weight of her arms in my body when she's hugging me. And her cheeks. It was hard for months and it's turned into years and it's hard all the time. I'm always thinking about this every waking moment and a lot of times while I'm sleeping that it's always there. Right away we were we were sure we were going to find some some way that we could have kids again and and now we have two. What are your biggest fears about raising them? Even though it's statistically not probable, I fear that they will be shot. But I've never really been ruled by fear. I will do my best to give them the tools to not live in fear. And I love you. I love you too. Jennifer Hensel and Jeremy Richmond recall their daughter, Aviel Richmond, killed in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Just over a year after this conversation was recorded, Jeremy Richmond died by suicide. He was 49. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This conversation will be archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Life of Pi at the ART, the spectacular award-winning play based on the beloved novel, now through January 29th, amrep.org. And Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Brittany Griner is back in the U.S. where she's expected to undergo a medical checkup after spending nearly 10 months in a Russian prison. The U.S. Olympian and WNBA star stepped off a plane in Texas before dawn, a day after President Biden announced her release. Griner was exchanged for Russian arms dealer Victor Boot, who was serving a 25-year sentence at a federal prison in the U.S., The White House says the president had been hoping to also secure the release of former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who was arrested in Russia nearly four years ago on espionage charges. David Whelan is Paul Whelan's brother. He was entrapped, uh, you know, run through the Russian legal system such as it is, and came out the other side with the label of espionage and spy put on him. Uh, But I don't think anybody takes that seriously. I don't even think that the Russian government takes it seriously. Uh, It's merely a label that they can then use to extract a concession from the U.S. government. David Whelan was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema says she's leaving the Democratic Party and registering as an independent. Sinema spoke to Politico and CNN, saying she's removing herself from the party structure as more voters in her state and across the country tire of partisanship. A former U.S. attorney is among three lawyers chosen to conduct an external review of the deadly shooting at the University of Virginia. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Leaders at Harvard are defending the use of affirmative action in admissions as the Supreme Court weighs whether to ban the practice. Harvard calls it an essential tool to build racial diversity on campus. It says the practice has boosted its enrollment of students of color. But critics say students still come from America's most affluent families. Researcher Richard Kallenberg says one reason for that is Harvard's admissions preference for children of alumni and faculty. Those are indefensible today. They're going to be really indefensible once racial preferences are banned. The Supreme Court ruling on the case is expected next spring or summer. The state's Cannabis Control Commission is asking for a big increase in its budget. Details from WBUR's Gara Hogopian. The commission has unanimously voted to approve a roughly $24 million request for the fiscal year that starts next July. It's an increase of $4.5 million. $18.5 million would fund main agency operations. Another roughly $4 million would go toward the medical marijuana program. And $1.5 million for public education campaigns. Commission officials say some of the increase is aimed at helping the agency implement the state's new cannabis equity law. The Cannabis Control Commission also wants to have a discussion about whether to continue with pandemic-era policy allowances set to expire at the end of the year, like allowing new medical marijuana patients to join the program without meeting a doctor in person. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Garo Hagopian. Nahant is bringing in federal officials to shoot coyotes. The town says coyotes are becoming increasingly aggressive toward dogs and other pets. It's hiring agents with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to kill the wild animals. Animal rights advocates tell the Boston Herald they're worried the culling of the coyotes could disrupt the natural food chain in the area. It's 8:33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College. Committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. 
online.merrimack.edu. The Bruins will visit Arizona tonight and in your forecast, clear skies today with temperatures in the low 40s. A few clouds move in tonight and it falls to the low 30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and in the low to mid 30s, it falls to the upper 20s in the evening. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Kirsten Cinema, a United States senator from Arizona, is leaving the Democratic Party. Here's the way she put it in a video she released. Registering as an independent and showing up to work with the title of independent is a reflection of who I've always been. And it's a reflection of who Arizona is. She had sometimes been on a different page with the rest of her party. Cinema's decision shakes up the power dynamic in the closely divided Senate. Democrats did have 51 votes, so uh, do they still? NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. First, the why. Why would she leave her party now? Well, Cinema told CNN in an interview that she never fit neatly into any party box, and she hasn't really tried. That's been the frustrating thing for Democrats about Chris Senator Cinema. Like West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, Cinema did b- regularly break with her party. You know, both she and Manchin pushed back on the size and scope of President Biden's big policy agenda. Ultimately, a, a much smaller health care and climate bill did pass this summer yeah. with all Democratic votes. But in this very choreographed video announcement, Cinema talked about, you know, this is a reflection of who she is, and she says it's not gonna change how she votes. I'm gonna show up to work. I'm gonna do my best for Arizona. I'm gonna continue to deliver results for everyday people. Nothing's gonna change for me. And I don't think anything's gonna change for Arizona. And I think Arizonans across the state are gonna say, yeah, that's the Kirsten we elected. That's who we sent to DC. Okay, there is the question of what happens with Senator Cinema, but also what happens to her former party. Democrats were just celebrating that they had an extra vote in the Senate. Um, but there are independents who have, uh, who have caucused with the Democrats. There are already a couple of independents who do this. Does this change anything really? Effectively, it means the Democrats will still have this 51-49 Senate majority that they were celebrating with the runoff win in Georgia on Tuesday night. I'm told Senator Sinema notified Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer yesterday. She's going to keep her committee assignments through Democrats. And like you said, there already are these two independents who do regularly caucus with the Democrats and vote with the Democrats for the most part. Bernie Sanders of Vermont, Angus King of Maine. But Sinema, you know, really already sort of skip party meetings. She says she will continue to scrutinize but support presidential appointees from President Biden. That's an important thing that Democrats can still pass this year. 
you know, Cinema was already an independent in terms of her voting record. Yeah. She said she wasn't comfortable in a partisan box. She does team up with Republicans. Even this week, she had been working with North Carolina Republican Tom Tillis on an immigration bill. So, you know, she's going to continue to chart her own path and, you know, we'll sort of see how she votes. Well, as much as some Democrats dislike cinema, they still need her, it seems to me, particularly heading into a difficult Senate election cycle in a couple of years. What about her future? Right. The 2024 election cycle for Senate Democrats is a really rough map. A lot of vulnerable uh, Democrats up in a lot of swing states. The political reality for Cinema is she was already facing a possible primary challenge from Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego. Progressives have been really angry about her voting record. But Arizona is a swing state, roughly a third Democrat, a third Republican, a third independence. So that may have played into her calculation in terms of whether she could win. Uh, she hasn't said whether she will run for re-election. If she does run as an independent, that could leave an opening for a Republican to potentially flip the seat red in 2024. Oh, yeah, if Democrats and independents were to split their votes. Deirdre, thanks so much. Thank you. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Meta, Amazon, and Twitter have all announced job cuts in recent weeks, adding to a growing list of tech layoffs. Are we headed for another dot-com bust, which helped create the recession back in the early 2000s? Adrian Ma and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, take a look. So we've all heard the story about how the pandemic changed consumption patterns a lot, like a lot more laptop and Netflix at home, working from home, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, the Fed was making interest rates very, very low. And so that meant that tech investors could afford to make these big bets that might pay off way into the future. And so tech companies expanded really rapidly to take advantage of that opportunity. And investors were 100% behind that strategy. Investors said, grow at all costs, go for broke. So that's Julia Pollack, chief economist at the job site ZipRecruiter. And Julia says... Facebook's parent company, Meta, is a prime example of this. During the pandemic, its staff grew by around 50%. But then the world changed. By spring of this year, the pandemic had eased in the U.S. A lot of people didn't want to be tethered to their TVs and their phones and Pelotons so much. Plus, because of all the inflation, the Fed had started raising interest rates, and there were recession fears. So ad revenue shrank, and venture capital was running dry. And as these headwinds started building, tech companies quietly started to pump the brakes on their hiring spree. Nick Bunker is with Indeed Hiring Lab. We saw the real pullback earlier this year. We could see job postings start to come down. So we had a period of exuberance where investors are chucking money at tech companies, followed by a big fall in tech stocks, and a lot of headline-grabbing layoffs in the tech industry. Could this be another dot-com bubble in the bursting? Well, this is where Nick essentially told me to take a deep breath. What we're seeing now sort of rhymes with the year 2000 um, in some sense, but I don't think it's at quite the scale. So for, for a sense of that scale, in the past year, the stocks on the tech-heavy Nasdaq exchange lost about 25% of their value, which is a lot. We shouldn't downplay that, but... During the dot-com bust, the Nasdaq fell by almost 80%. Another thing that Nick said to keep in mind is that the tech workforce is pretty small compared to the overall workforce in America. If you try to line up you know, the companies that we're talking about with their sort of share of overall employment, somewhere around 2% of all employment. 
Another reason we should not worry about tech dragging down the rest of the economy right now is that the job market is still pretty strong. And Julia Pollack at ZipRecruiter, she says when you look at the data on all the sectors, not just tech, the economy is adding 60% more jobs each month than it was before the pandemic. Weakness in Silicon Valley and on Wall Street is still largely being offset by strength on Main Street. And there's very little risk of these tech layoffs causing us to go into a recession. There have been tens of thousands of tech layoffs, but Julia says a lot of big tech companies are still much bigger than they were before the pandemic because of the hiring sprees they went on. Okay, so there you go. So do we have a dot-com bust? Not right now, at least not yet. Darian Woods, Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, a preview of a special holiday concert in Boston this weekend, Tuba Christmas. In your forecast, sunny and low to mid-40s today, clear tonight while temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, upper 30s, cloudy on Sunday in the 30s with snow possible late in the day. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 843. WBUR supporters include an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, a place to come together for books, coffee, author discussions, holiday gifts, and more. Visit an unlikelystory.com. Now in business news, Burlington-based Aqua Security is laying off more than 60 people, about 10 percent of its workforce. The layoffs come even as the cybersecurity company says it doubled revenue over the last year. Company officials say economic conditions drove them to make the cuts. MassMutual and Wayfair are losing state tax breaks because they aren't hiring enough Massachusetts workers. A state council tells the Boston Business Journal it is taking away a combined $64 million in tax breaks from the two companies. The popular Nantucket restaurant Stubby's is opening a new spot in Boston's seaport. This will be its second location. It plans to open in spring of 2023. The restaurant plans to serve all-day breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Hi there, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO, here to say thank you to everybody who gave so generously during our end-of-the-year fundraiser. You helped us surpass our goal, which is incredible. You know, the late, great jazz poet Gil Scott Heron once said, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And that's exactly what you did. Thank you again, and have a wonderful holiday season. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Tis the season for tubas. (laughs) 
Throughout the holidays, musicians around the world unite for annual tuba Christmas concerts. Boston's is tomorrow. WBUR's Andrea Shea spoke with the event's coordinator about these kind of goofy heavy metal performances. Tubas are rarely the stars in orchestras and ensembles. So often as a tubist, you sit in the back going boom, 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 boom. 37-year-old Natalie Sheeler says getting to play holiday melodies with more than 100 other low brass musicians is one of the joys of tuba Christmas. It was created in order to bring attention to the tuba family, which often doesn't get as much attention as other families of instruments. Tuba titan and proponent Harvey Phillips founded the event to honor his teacher William Bell, who was born on Christmas Day, 1902. The first concert took place at New York's Rockefeller Center in 1974, and the low brass love fest spread to cities across the globe. to the Boston Tuba Christmas the last eight years since I've lived here. And every year, my father and I play alongside each other at the Tuba Christmas. Sheeler's father travels from Pittsburgh for this all-age, all-level event. There have been people from California. There have been people from other countries, you know. And they just are so happy to play Christmas carols together on their favorite instrument that it's become a tradition. Sheeler's instrument isn't actually a tuba. The music teacher from Plymouth plays the euphonium. So the tuba is the lowest member of the brass family. The euphonium sounds an octave above. It looks like a little mini tuba, and and I can show you mine here. There's also the larger, more curvaceous marching band instrument known as the sousaphone. Some of them actually have double bells, and they actually have had those over the last couple of years at the Boston Tuba Christmas events. One person has already emailed me that they might bring what's called an ophiclide. This is an old, more kind of bassoon-looking version of a tuba. Altogether, Sheeler says they're a pretty eclectic bunch. It looks very... Dr. Seuss-like, or kind of like the brass band that you'll see in the Harry Potter movies. Whenever you hear 100 or 200 tubas together, it's just so much sound that it's show-stopping. It makes your whole body vibrate in a way that kind of like when you go to a rock concert. Some tubists even refer to their music as heavy metal. The low brass personality tends to be the kind of goofy, fun personality that's like a little bit silly and a little bit more lighthearted. And I think that this event suits that personality, certainly. We wish you a tuba Christmas. We wish you a tuba Christmas. We wish you a tuba Christmas and a happy new year. 
sing-alongs, festive sweaters, tubas decorated with tinsel and Christmas lights are all part of the wacky spectacle. Sheeler is conducting for the first time this year and looks forward to regaling audiences with insights into these huge yet humble instruments. This is the Euphonium and Tuba Awareness Day, so I hope they walk away with a little bit more understanding of what these instruments are. And with a little more boom to kick off their holiday spirit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Boston's Tuba Christmas concert begins at noon tomorrow at Downtown Crossing. As the tubas fade away, we'll turn to Jane Clayson, who's here in studio to tell us Keep what's on like the tubas. <laughs> here and now today. Hi, Jane. Hi, Rupa. Good to see you. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. So coming up today at noon, we'll look at the bill to protect same-sex marriage with lawmakers from both parties voting in favor of it. Of course, we're following the release of Brittany Griner, traded for the Russian arms dealer Victor Boot. What does that mean for Americans still being held? Mm-hmm. Uh, look at uh, the fallout of Arizona Democrat Kristen Kirsten Cinema announcing she's leaving the Democrats to become an independent. What does that mean in the U.S. Senate? Um, also a deeper dive, uh, Rupa, today in what's happening in Germany. Dozens arrested. QAnon-inspired group is accused of plotting to overthrow the government. It's an interesting and, and very scary story there. And renowned Italian tenor Andrea Bocelli mm-hmm. has a new project, his first album with his 25-year-old son, Matteo, and his 10-year-old daughter, Virginia. I brought a little bit of it. Here's one of their songs. It's called The Greatest Christmas. So are you talking to the Bocelli family? All of them. What? All of them? Matteo and Virginia, and I'll tell you, as as amazing as Andrea Bocelli is, it's his daughter. It's the 10-year-old who steals the show. It's a lovely wow. conversation with the family Bocelli, the next generation of beautiful voices Sounds coming wonderful. today. Sounds wonderful. Thank you, Jane. Have a good weekend. You too. That's here and now today at noon. It's 8.51. Stay inside. Hear the angels sing. Hear the angels sing. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. Uncommonfeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. And Brian O'Donovan's Christmas Celtic Sojourn, celebrating 20 years, December 10th to 18th. New Bedford, Worcester, Rockport, Boston, and streaming. ChristmasCeltic.com. An app for the young aims at retirement. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity Wealth Management, helping create plans for a client's full financial picture. Fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio. Robinhood, the online trading platform popular among younger stock and crypto traders, now says that it's getting into the retirement account business, individual retirement accounts, IRAs. This is the same company that the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority hit with the largest fine it had ever imposed, $70 million, for misleading customers and encouraging overly risky trades. The app used push alerts 
encouraging users to make trades that could potentially put them in the hole. Marketplace's Andy Euler has more. Robinhood lost a bunch of users after federal regulators fined them for a number of misleading practices. Now it's trying to lure some back, with fee-free individual retirement accounts aimed at gig workers who don't always have access to retirement savings plans. Steve Quirk is chief brokerage officer at Robinhood. What we set out to do is put our minds to thinking about how we can build an offering that helps them. It fits with Robinhood's stated mission of democratizing finance, first through stock trading and now with retirement. John Scott is project director for retirement savings at the Pew Charitable Trusts. He says anything that gets young people thinking about retirement savings is a positive. In this country, your retirement security is dependent on what you save. And the earlier you save, um, even if it's a small amount, it could have a big impact on your retirement security. Robinhood says it has almost half a million people on a waiting list for the IRA product. But the census puts the number of Americans without retirement savings in the tens of millions. I don't think it's going to move the needle one iota. Alicia Manel is director of the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. It's really rare for someone to go out and set up an individual retirement account and contribute to it. It won't hurt anything, but it is not the answer to the coverage uh, problem in our existing retirement system. Robinhood says it's looking to educate users on retirement and what the app is doing with the money that people contribute. But Vicki Bogan at Cornell University is skeptical. She testified last year in Congress that Robinhood's system of push notifications and prompts encouraged potentially risky trades that chiefly benefited the company's bottom line. Its business model and business practices have not always served the best interest of the users on the platform. She says lowering barriers to entry into the retirement space is definitely a good thing. But transparency with regard to the business model and where exactly they're going to be making their money and how they're going to be making their money is important for users to understand. Robinhood says it will make money on this product like it does elsewhere, through collecting a share of profits on customer trades, from interest on uninvested cash, and by lending out shares of stocks to short sellers. In Austin, I'm Andy Euler for Marketplace. And on the hunt for hidden risks to the financial system, the Securities and Exchange Commission is asking publicly held companies to let regulators know how exposed they are to digital assets of the crypto kind. This after one of the top crypto trading platforms, FTX, fell apart and into bankruptcy protection. Meanwhile, one Democratic congressman who's been a supporter of the crypto industry, Richie Torres of New York, is blaming the chair of the SEC, Gary Gensler, for the FTX mess and is urging the Government Accountability Office to look into SEC's regulation and response to crypto. Let us do the numbers. Stock index futures have now turned down. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are down in the four-tenths of a percent range. This despite word this morning that wholesale prices using fresh November data rose at an annual rate of 7.4%. That's five months in a row where inflation moved down. The Campbell Soup Company is saying sales rose 15% last quarter compared to the same time last year. Now, that's despite selling fewer cans of soup. Sales volume fell by about a percent. Now, one way that happens is if the company raises prices beyond the inflation of its costs. Marketplace's Justin Ho reports. Campbell says price hikes were a big part of why its sales rose last quarter. But it's not just packaged foods that are getting more expensive. Almost everything is. Produce, meat, dairy, even going out to eat. 
And that's exactly why Campbell's soups and other packaged goods are looking a lot more attractive, despite their higher prices. People could trade down further and buy generic or private label foods, but those are getting more expensive too. Overall, food companies' input costs have been rising, and as a result, they're likely to keep prices high, since their costs are likely to stay high. Meanwhile, packaged food companies could focus more on offering products at multiple price points, so people have cheaper options. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. The Biden administration is suing to stop one of the biggest tech mergers, a bid to block Microsoft's purchase of the video game company Activision Blizzard. The co government says the combination hurts competition. It was a $75 billion deal, and a court fight is expected to maybe could be its own video game. Microsoft is Xbox. Activision is Call of Duty, World of, World of Warcraft, Tony Hawk stuff, Fast and Furious, and many more. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by the United States Postal Service, offering holiday postage stamps for purchase at more than 40,000 supermarkets, drugstores, office suppliers, and wholesale clubs. Japan, Britain, and Italy have announced an agreement to develop a new fighter jet, which could take to the air in about a dozen years. It's Japan's first major industrial defense collaboration beyond the U.S. since the Second World War. More from the BBC's defense correspondent, Jonathan Beale. Building such a complex aircraft is extremely expensive, and Britain's been looking for partners. Italy was already on board, but the addition of Japan is a significant move. At a time when Britain's forging closer ties with allies in the Indo-Pacific region, worried about a more assertive China. France, Germany and Spain are already working together on their own separate design, as is the US. For the UK government, this agreement is not just about security, but also economics. The hope is that developing a new fighter jet could sustain and create thousands of UK jobs and open doors to more arms exports. Jonathan Beale is with our editorial partner, the BBC. Our digital producer is Redmond Carolipio. Our engineers are Jess and Dooler and Nick Esposito. I am David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Behind the scenes today, Michaela Varela is our engineer. Samantha Kutzia and Robert Lane are our writers. Dan Guzman is our executive producer. In your forecast, mid-40s and sunny today, clear and low 30s tonight, cloudy and 30s tomorrow, and about the same on Sunday. It's 36 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. Hi there, it's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO, here to say thank you to everybody who gave so generously during our end of the year fundraiser. You helped us surpass our goal, which is incredible. You know, the late, great jazz poet Gil Scott Heron once said, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And that's exactly what you did. Thank you again and have a wonderful holiday season. 
I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.